Welcome to the third of the Middle Temple's Survive and Thrive podcasts. The Survive and Thrive series are live events put on three to four times a year by Middle Temple. The aim of each Survive and Thrive event is to provide barristers in particular, but lawyers generally, with inspiration and advice on the valuable non-legal skills they need to flourish in their careers. Today's Survive and Thrive event features Professor Joe Delahunty, QC, a barrister, Mr Justice Edis and Lord Justice Baker, who are both judges. And we have Mary Aspinall-Miles, also a barrister, as the moderator. We're delighted that you're all joining us for this episode of the Survive and Thrive podcast. Thank you ever so much for being here. The Survive and Thrive event tonight is called Judge, Friend or Foe. And what we'd like to do in the podcast is try and explore the respective positions of the bar and the bench, the different demands and constraints that each are operating under. For example, what are the unseen pressures both before and during the hearing that judges are under that perhaps advocates aren't really aware of? What can you tell us about that, Andrew? Well, I think the first thing is uh, there are as many different pressures for judges as there are for anybody else. So judges might have their own personal issues in their lives uh, as anybody else might. They have childcare responsibilities, they have old parents, have financial things, they may be worried about all sorts of things, running a life just like anybody else. As far as the job is concerned, though, the pressures, I think, probably are fairly apparent, or they should be to somebody who really understands what's going on, which is you have a responsibility to deliver a fair hearing in a reasonable time, and if you are not sitting with a jury, to deliver a proper, fair, understandable decision. So you have the pressure of actually understanding things, or if you're sitting with a jury, helping them to understand things as the things going on. So all those are fairly obvious pressures, I think, which, as I say, anybody who understands the dynamic of a trial uh, would appreciate quite quickly. And what about you, Jonathan? What, What do you say? Well, I agree with all of that. I think there are pressures. You get pressures to do with the case... It might be an area of law that you're unfamiliar with as a judge. There will be practical problems, late filing of papers, witnesses not available, technical problems, video link not working, etc. But on top of that, there'll be problems with other cases because you're not just dealing with the one case. There'll be all sorts of other cases you've got to handle. And also all judges, or most judges at least, have other commitments apart from sitting in court, which increasingly... Um, in the last few years have added to the demands on our time. So th- those are the pressures we're always under. But the key thing is, when you get into court, try not to let those outside pressures get in the way. And I, I, I hope I manage to focus on the case and the issues in the case once I get in, um, into the courtroom. Do you at any one time have a, a backlog of judgments that, yes, you're, that you're writing? Yes, you do have a backlog of judgments, and that, that's, that can cause a lot of pressure. I've got a backlog at the moment. you better edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, you do have a backlog, and that, that can be very worrying, and particularly if you take on more more commitments outside the actual judging, so administrative responsibilities, leadership responsibilities, you can find that the, the judgments stack up. Do people and chase you? They do chase you. Yeah, they do. And in fact, there are there, and, and indeed, that within the court system, there is a there's a there's a process for checking. You're chased up. Oh goodness, there's a spreadsheet somewhere, is there? There's a spreadsheet. All the circuits have a spreadsheet, with the, and and some judges are worse than others at, at, at judgment writing. Gosh. Well, with that in mind, then Andrew, what single thing could advocates do early in the hearing to really help the advocate-judge relationship get off on the right foot? Well, I think. 
that the most important thing from a judge's point of view is that they should appreciate quickly that the advocate is actually properly prepared and has understood the case uh, and is running it in a way which is sensible and which actually properly and without unnecessary distraction, properly advancing the case that they're supposed to be there advancing. So to appear focused, well-prepared, reasonably succinct, and just look as though you mean business, I think. That will command the, the respect of the judge really quite quickly. Yeah. Jonathan, I entirely agree. You, I think the, the best advocates identify and articulate what the issues are at the outset. They set the agenda. And that's particularly important in the Court of Appeal, where I now sit, where you don't have much time and you've really got to start off on the front foot. And of course, it lets you as the judge, if, if you've already agreed with them on point one, but you're concerned about point two, you can say, well, let's not start with point one, let's go straight to point exactly. two. Exactly. And if, if you, as a judge, get a sense that the advocates know what they're doing and are on top of the issues, um, it really increases your confidence because it is a two-way relationship. You've got to work together to get this case sorted. And if you can, if you're confident that the advocates know what they're doing, um, by the way they open and present their case, that's that's really important. So it's a matter of est establishing trust. You you want to feel that the advocate you can trust the advocate right from the get-go. Well, usually, um, often certainly in if it, in the family division, for example, you in the family courts, you tend to know the advocates a lot of the advocates, so you, you know those who will do all that and, and those who might find it more difficult. Yeah. Let's switch perspective then and let's ask the barristers. Barristers, of course, have uh, pressures that they may not be able to control, that we've just talked about, childcare, whatever it might be. Do you think that it is the role of the advocate at any stage to communicate that to the judge or not? And if, if you think that there are times and places for the advocate to explain to the judge, well, this is the difficulty I have. How best should they approach that? Joe? what do you think? I think we have to remember that the courtroom is a professional environment, so the personal pressures you are under should be kept personal to you or those you trust, unless they're going to impact on the job you do for the client or the way the court needs to manage the hearing because it's not a free-for-all. We are there for a reason, and the focus must be to do the job to the best of our ability. In terms of the pressures we're under, though, to do that job, we at the Public Law Bar operate under a 24-7 accessibility email system. And it's an underfunded system, which means that the old standards that used to operate, particularly for barristers, where they might expect to have papers sent with instructions, that might have been communicated from the client, so the client was coming to court to have a value-added service, as opposed to one which now, I'm afraid, is too often a post-box service where barristers are scrabbling with trying to catch up with a dump of information, meeting the client and trying to convey the essence of that information to the client, take instructions upon it all the time while the clock's ticking. And that is a burden that will appear in every single directions hearing, in every single case, I'm afraid, pretty much at the public funded bar. And the lower down the system you get in the court system, the more intense the pressures are because the quality of work is not so good and not so well prepared. And having um, listened to the explanations given by these two esteemed and very senior <laughs> judges, um, I sit as a recorder and so I'm down at the coalface. 
Uh, I know that judges get to court at 7.30. They get to court at 7.30 because they have to go through the paperwork in order to understand what they're going to be dealing with. And just locating the papers sometimes can be a struggle, so they're not even clear what cases are there before them. But there is a real commitment, I think, to both the bench and the bar to try to make a system that is creaking work to the best of its ability. And when it goes off the rails, it's not for lack of trying. So do you think it's permissible then to say if you've been dumped with a whole load of last-minute papers to explain that to the judge? I think if it means that you've not been able to give the client the opportunity of being given advice, because that's why we're there, then yes, you must, and you must ask for time. I remember growing up um, being over at Somerset House many, many years ago with some judges that when you said, this isn't my case, I've picked up the papers recently, you've been met with a very, very robust um, kick in the proverbial to say, well, you're here, you will now deal with it, I will give you X number of minutes. Now I think judges are more understand they understand more about the speedness with which we can get instructions and they are more responsive when we ask for time but jonathan's right if you know the advocate and the advocate's asking for time then we are invariably given it because we're trusted to do behind the scenes that work which the judge understands is going to shorten the time where they're in court but now we may not have the luxury of having a stable of known advocates in front of us where we can trust them to manage their time adequately and it's when there's that mismatch between demands on the court's time, demands on the advocate's time, um, that's when we rub up against tensions. Um, that's where clarity of purpose and difficulties is, I think, an, uh, a welcome dialogue between both the bench and the bar. Mary, I've seen you nod along. Is there something you'd like to add to that? I, I think two things I, I'd like to add is one is you have to delineate between circuit practitioners. There's a very different dynamic um, in the judicial relationship between advocates who appear in front of the same judge year in, year out, again and again. Um, the relationship uh, between um, advocates and uh, judges on circuit are very close. You get to know each other quite often they're former colleagues who've been elevated to the bench um, and there's a different dynamic um, and so from that sort of perspective I can certainly say that on circuit um, looking at the original question uh, I agree with everything Joe said about if it's a professional environment but I'm going to say this I have been met with kindness um, and consideration by judges in respect of my childcare arrangements, they're well aware of it and they're well aware of difficulties. I don't let it impinge on my day job, but when it does, I'm met with understanding for the most part when it can be accommodated. And I think that's moved on a considerable deal from when I uh, first started at the bar. And I also think I'm a criminal practitioner and I think it's very important for criminal practitioners to communicate clearly to the bench that we don't get the support that perhaps um, was once there um, when a lot of judges might have been back at practice. You mean papers, papers in a proper with a proper brief? Well, it's not even so much that. Um, you know, when I first started at the criminal bar, um, outdoor clerks used to sit behind defence practitioners, and they were an invaluable aid to the job I was doing. If you were prosecuting, the Crown Prosecution Service would send a clerk to sit behind you. Um, and now, defence solicitors 
try and send, depending on the gravity of the case, Crown Prosecution Service will if they can, but actually frequently I'm juggling writing down the answers to cross-examination um, which was something, when I started at the bar, somebody else did. So there's this juggling aspect. And I think that unless the local judiciary have a clear um, working communication with the Crown Prosecution Service, local defence practitioners, I mean, no discourtesy, but I think it's important that the message gets fed back in open court that these are the difficulties that we're facing and why. I think, it, and I think it's only proper that members of the public are aware as to the pressures that everyone's facing. I'm well aware that judges are now coming in at 7.30 in the morning because they've not been given digital access. Crown courts will work on a digital yes. case uh, system. That they're not being given access and they're being given what's known as PTPH lists that are running 10, 15, 20, and they're having to prepare those the night before the morning, um, uh, before a 10 o'clock start. So there's a much greater communication from all sides now, which I think is really to be encouraged. And advocates are becoming braver about saying um, in open court, I'm very sorry, Judge, you know I wouldn't normally ask, but this is why I have to do it. I'm interested to know what uh, our judges think about when barristers ask for sympathy. If it's not, they're, they're not asking for an adjournment, they're asking, they're just letting you know the challenges that they're they're facing, that they've had these instructions last minute or something like that. Do you feel sympathetic when you hear that or do you think, well, that's part of the job and you should keep it to yourself? Um, Andrew. Well, I probably have this problem more frequently than Jonathan these days because in the Court of Appeal, perhaps it doesn't happen. He <laughs> doesn't agree with that. He'll speak in a minute about that. But, but actually, I sit in the Crown Court, uh, among other places, so I see exactly what Mary's talking about. Um, it, it isn't difficult to communicate the message to the judges because we can see there's nobody else there. Um, and we are well aware, I think, of, of the realities of it and sympathetic to those who are trying to deal with it, as long as we are absolutely confident that that is what they are trying to do, which is usually the case. Um, and, I mean, in a sense, there's not a lot you can do um, if they're asking for time and a German to, to do something, well, you can grant it. But if they're just struggling with cross-examining properly because they haven't had a proper opportunity to prepare the case, there's not a great deal you can do to help them with that, except not be really beastly to them, which obviously you wouldn't be anyway, I hope. It is different in the Court of Appeal. Um, things are much more tightly controlled, um, and I don't think that the advocates will get last-minute instructions or papers sprung on them to the same extent mm. that they do um, at first instance. Um, but I, you know, I've not been in the Court of Appeal that long. I do remember what it was like. And I, of course, what Joe jo and Mary describe is absolutely, absolutely right. Um, if, what you want is someone to tell you if, if they've got a problem. Quite a lot of barristers don't tell you, or, or advocates don't tell you if they've got a problem. Um, and I do think there is a tendency within the profession to take on more work than you, than, than you can handle. Mm -hmm. um, I know I did that, so I'm not disblaming. I know so I did that at the bar. I mean, also, you can do it as a judge, too. You can take on another case and not give yourself enough time to do all the things you need to do, not least write the judgment. So I think, I think, um, I think advocates and all of us have to bet, get used to managing time in a different environment from the one that existed when, when I started that a long time ago. So really, it's, it's all about communication and 
communication is partly about persuading a judge to make a decision in your client's favour. What do you think judges can do to facilitate that communication, Jonathan? You've got to present yourself as someone who's receptive to it. Um, and this is an age-old problem, and it's not just, by the way, within the law. It's true across, across all jobs. You've got to create an atmosphere in court where people can feel confident that they can share things with you. And some judges can do that, and some judges can't. Do you think it can be learnt as a skill? I think, I think there's a lot more scope for training judges to do a lot of things, and advocates, by the way, all of us. We all have more training now about things that we never had training. We never had, when I came to the bar, I never had advocacy training. Um, that's an integral part of the, of the course now. But, um, so there's scope for training, and there is, are there opportunities for learning judgecraft? There are judgecraft courses run by the Judicial College. There could be more. There could be... Um, uh, I, I think there are plenty of scope for improving on that. But yes, I do think it's something you can learn up to a point. Not everybody can learn, can learn it, of course. Andrew, what do you think? Well, I, I agree. I, I don't think it's something that can be taught to someone who has simply got a tin ear. Yeah. Um, but we would hope that the appointment process increasingly should be uh, trying to value those communicative abilities in deciding whether to give people a job in the first place. So you would hope that um, judges would perhaps more than in 20 or 30 years ago would actually be chosen because that's one of the things they're quite good at because it is an essential part of the job. It's certainly part of the uh, criteria that the Judicial Appointments Commission identifies for choosing judges, whether it succeeds always in finding them. Mm. It's not for me to say. How do you try and create that atmosphere in court then? Jonathan's a natural. He is an absolute natural. When you go into Jonathan's court, and um, it's, you know there's going to be a respectful dialogue and you know it's going to be good-humoured, but there's going to be discipline when discipline is required. Um, and so there are some judges who it is always a pleasure to appear in front of, however dire your case is. Um, others, we go into court with a degree of trepidation because their personality means that we know someone is likely to have a less than positive hearing in front of them. And that's where I agree with both Andrew and Jonathan. You can teach many skills, but being a communicator in large part is about a personality type. Mm. We've now moved, I think, from the old style type of automatic respect which I certainly grew up with with the judges I appeared in front of um, to an environment where clients are now much more social media savvy they are more demanding of their advocates they are more judgmental of the court environment and we do the court system a disservice if they don't get the type of respectful ear that they expect to hear in court. That's the only way in which we can try to convince them that, that they are being listened to and their case is going to be tried justly. Yeah. Well, finally, then, I wondered, uh, what is it that advocates commonly do that really make you purse your lips with frustration? <laughs> I want to make it clear, I don't think, and Joe will correct me, I purse my lips. <laughs> no. But thinking about things that advocates do and not just what advocates who appear in front of me do but what I did when I was an advocate and what others did when I was against them. 
Um, I think that um, in the terms of the work that they do, I think advocates who don't get to the point, the, 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 what we were saying earlier, identifying issues, that, that is extremely irritating. Um, uh, and it, 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 it's, it's something which is really important, I think. I mean, occasionally you get advocates who showboat, who put on um, a, a show for the client or somebody else in court rather than the judge. And the point of the advocate is to persuade the judge. That's why you're there. I think, as I said earlier, advocates who clearly take on too much work and aren't properly prepared, mm. or worse still, are double-booked, this doesn't happen in the Court of Appeal, believe me. But it does happen, it happens certainly in, in, in the family division and certainly in the family courts. Oh, Mr. X isn't available, he's in the other court. And that still happens. Um, and that is, that's really irritating. And the other thing which I think we ought to mention, because it doesn't happen very often, but you do hear about it, is advocates and, I'm not singly advocates, all professionals, who come to court, including judges, who are not respectful to court staff. That really does happen. Yeah. Very occasionally. But the judge will always hear about this because, believe me, if an advocate's been rude to the usher, mm. the, the usher will tell the judge. Uh, that, 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 that does happen. And it's quite an eye-opener, actually, because it's not necessarily the people you might suspect. Oh, that's interesting. Gosh. Any thoughts, Andrew? <laughs> Mary leans forward. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what I wish I'd known when I was a barrister was that is that um, barristers squabbling with each other and scoring oh, cheap points about something which doesn't matter and uh, appearing to be upset, perhaps actually being upset or irritated by each other. Um, is extremely tedious from the point of view of the court. And I see people not in the case I'm doing at the moment, certainly, but in historical cases, I see people doing that, and I can watch the jury thinking, I do wish they'd stop doing that and get on with the case. And I used to do it myself. I think most barristers do succumb to that temptation sometimes. We're all human and you get irritated. But I just wish I had known how, um, how off-putting it really is to the jury who are trying to get to the bottom of the case. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you ever so much, everyone, for having come to speak to the Survive and Thrive podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, or if you feel that a happy and successful life at the bar is not just about knowing the law and being an excellent advocate, then please do check out the Middle Temple website for more information about the Survive and Thrive series. You can watch previous events which have been filmed, and you can take a look at what's coming up and book tickets if you like the sound of any of them. Come and see what we're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Well, that's our rehearsal then. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I think it's into the hall next.